Hello and welcome to New Books in Science. I'm Maya Wollner and I'll be your podcast host. Today I have the real pleasure of speaking with Dr. Jonathan W. Marshall about his book, Performing Neurology, The Dramaturgy of Dr. Jean-Martin Charcot, published in 2016 by Palgrave Macmillan. Dr. Marshall is an interdisciplinary scholar with a background in history. His areas of expertise include the relationship between the arts and medicine. He is currently coordinator of postgraduate studies at the Western Australian Academy of Performing Arts, where he teaches and supervises artist researchers and other students. Good morning, Dr. Marshall. It's a pleasure to have you on the podcast. Thank you, Ma. It's lovely to be here. So how did you first encounter the work of Jean-Martin Charcot and what inspired you to write this book? Um, so the work is, like most large works, been a long time in gestation, including initially uh, my PhD thesis. But actually, before even that, um, in undergraduate studies, I had, was fortunate enough to be taught by um, Professor Charles Sauwein, known as Chip, um, at the University of Melbourne. And he did this fantastic lecture on um, Foucault's work on um, sexuality, uh, in which Foucault notes how the um, female body became what Foucault describes as hystericized. Um, and Chips pointed out that really to understand this properly, we probably needed to know a little bit about uh, the figure from whom uh, Foucault was taking this idea, which was Jean-Martin Charcot, a late 19th century French neurologist. And so Chips described the lectures which were being presented, how these patients went into these quite amazing kind of very melodramatic sort of states and seizures and other conditions. Um, and I was, you know, really taken. I thought this sounds like theatre, which indeed it, it really was. So that was kind of where I started. So for the sake of clarity, maybe we can start um, by also giving a bit more information to our listeners about Jean-Martin Charcot, the, the main protagonist of, uh, of your book. Um, so maybe you can provide us with a brief biographical sketch. Sure. Uh, so Jean-Martin Charcot was born in 1825. Um, He died relatively young, or at least by my standards, so he died in 1893 from a heart attack. Um, But he moved fairly rapidly through the medical uh, profession in Paris, um, in part because he worked with Raya, who is, um, we don't really remember Raya very much now, but he was politically quite important at the um, medical faculty. And Charcot actually had a very, very varied career. Um, He looked at material related to kidneys, to gerontology, but his real strength was neurology. And in fact, he became the founder of neurology as a formal discipline in France. Um, And so this, by now we're getting to the 1870s, um, just as France is becoming um, kind of more stable politically, culturally, it's growing and becoming very, very important um, internationally. So he really kind of rode that wave and became one of the most famous physicians of his age, um, not for a very long period, but um, for a while. Um, so his uh, practice was principally at the Salpetriere Hospital in Paris. Now, for those of you who remember your um, uh, Lady Diana, um, you may recall this is the hospital where, in fact, um, the remains of her ended up being delivered to, um, unfortunately. So the hospital's still there and it's still a functioning hospital. Um, but even now, I have to say, it has a rather kind of depressing and falling down aspect. Um, It's quite an old hospital. It was established just right when the hospitals were first built in France in the 17th century. So Charcot helped reform it, build it into a very important leading centre. And so his name also became very closely associated with that site. And he developed around him a school of physicians 
um, who worked under him and with him, um, principally in neurology, but also in some other related areas. And my focus is very much on the neurological work because neurology is a um, dis- or consists of a series of diseases related to neuromotor control. So basically the dynamic or moving body. And as I pointed out before, um, that's really a kind of theatre. To describe that in an age prior to cinema, and cinema was invented in 1894, the Lumiere brothers did their first screenings then, so that's one year after Charcot died. Prior to the invention of cinema itself, if you're going to look and at a moving body and then represent it to people, pupils who are teaching about how it moves, theatre is definitely the obvious choice. So let me ask a little bit more about the Salpetriere as well. Uh, you know, you've mentioned when the hospital was founded, but I, I want to know who were the principal, who were the principal patients um, that Charcot dealt with, and sort of what was the what was the hospital atmosphere like in greater detail. Um, well, as I said, the hospital was pretty run down, really, um, and Charcot brought quite a lot of money and influence to bear in improving that. Um, But it had also been a a leading site for a lot of um, developments in medicine. Um, Probably most famously prior to Charcot, this would have been um, Pinel, um, who was uh, one of those who worked in the field of uh, mental illness. And people sometimes confuse that Charcot was a psychiatrist. He wasn't. He was a neurologist. So his interest is on neuromotor control. And that often is closely related to psychiatry, since if your nervous tissue is damaged, then obviously that's going to have cerebral and behavioural issues. But prior to Charcot, it was more people like Pinel, who'd been working in um, psychiatry or alienism, as they just uh, called it in France at that point, meaning to be alienated from oneself, which is kind of an interesting description of um, mental illness, I've always thought. Um, The alienists had had quite a significant role there in building it up. They'd also been anatomists. Um, particularly those who developed what Charcot later continued to develop, which was known as the anatomico-clinical technique. So what you do is you observe behaviour in living patients, and then after they die, you dissect them and try and connect um, particular tremors or other problems with the patient to quite specific um, damage within the tissues. And some of the early work in that had been done at the Salpetria, um, and Charcot really continued that. As far as the other the patients that he himself dealt with, though, um, he had a very varied practice, as I said. Um, the Salpetria, first important thing to remember, is the hospital itself was for um, women and basically destitute women. So um, women might be there um, uh, kind of semi-willingly, um, but um, really they don't have a lot of choice. They're there because they are lacking means. Um, and in some cases, the, there's been legal requirements for them to be sequestered there due to um, mental illness. So we have destitute women, enormous populations. We're talking thousands. Um, uh, the Salpetria was kind of like a city within the city itself. It had some laundry, it had some bakery. Um, it's still got a kind of trolley system. They had a similar one back then, uh, which moves through the hospital like kind of a little train. Um, so it's an amazing kind of place, a little environment unto itself. Charcot dealt, therefore, with principally destitute women with, um, and hence, therefore, typically rather old women. Now, some of his most famous patients and the ones who we see um, in a particular publication, the Iconographie Photographique de la Salpetrière, a text which is quite well known, um, that some of those are quite young. 
That is atypical, though, of Charcot's patients. They're far more commonly in their 40s through to their 60s, and he really tended to deal with them. Um, that said, because Charcot was this famous figure, he also had a private practice, which he ran out of um, the Salpetriere, um, essentially a consulting clinic um, where people who weren't patients of the hospital itself would come and see him. So he also saw kind of more well-to-do patients um, and therefore men as well. So he didn't have very many male patients, but he certainly had male patients. And he was particularly interested in um, industrial labourers um, because one of the very large patient groups he had were those who'd been classified as hysterics. Now, again, there's a bit of confusion here because when we think of hysteria, we normally think of this as really a behavioural thing and quite connected to um, very gendered behaviour and or sexuality. So women kind of screaming and enrages and sort of falling and fainting and these kind of things. Now, that's not to say that that wasn't part of how they diagnosed hysteria, but for Charcot's patients and Charcot himself, hysteria was a disease principally of seizure. So, in fact, he preferred the title hysterioepilepsy because what he saw in his patients um, was that when they fall into these kind of more complicated um, states, they go through a quite um, specific set of poses over the course of seizure. Um, so he had very large numbers of hysterical patients and they proved to be both the most interesting because it was very hard to work out what was the organic cause of hysteria. In fact, he never succeeded at that. He described um, hysteria as a kind of sphinx or sort of problem to be uncoded, and he never fully um, succeeded at that. Um, and also the public was fascinated by this, and people would write newspaper reports and come from all over the place to see the hysterical patients, and it was quite a hot topic issue. Yes. Um, I, since I, we are here, I would like to speak a little bit about hysteria. Um, maybe you can tell us uh, how his ideas about hysteria differed from Sigmund Freud, um, because we do know, of course, that Freud studied under uh, Charcot for a brief period of time. Yeah, yeah. So one of the reasons, again, if you're not a neurologist and you might have heard of Charcot, you probably would know him for his connection with Freud. Um, he was very influential on Freud, and Freud wrote a wonderful essay about Charcot, which I draw quite heavily on um, in various parts of the book. Um, so Freud, as I said, we have this split really between um, thinking of uh, hysteria as fundamentally a kind of behavioural illness and hence something which belongs to psychiatry as a discipline and that's how you treat it and diagnose it versus hysteria is really something of the flesh, I guess you'd have to say, of neuromotor control, of the way in which nerves spark and the, or they don't spark ultimately, and that would put it under the control of people like Charcot. Now, Charcot was very clear that he thought that's what it was, um, and part of the reasoning for that was the fact that these patients had seizures and, in fact, that these seizures were quite anatomically precise. They followed um, pathways and ways of moving in the body, which are quite difficult to know if you're not a specialist in medicine. Although, as it turns out, we have a little bit of evidence that some of the patients probably read some quite detailed medical texts. So maybe they were actually a lot cleverer than we um, have positive information proving one way or the other. My, that's personally my feeling, that they did know this stuff. Um, but Charcot kept claiming that because their um, physical ailments were so complicated that they couldn't possibly be faking them, and so they must be organically caused. They must come from problems in the tissues. For Freud, quite the contrary, hysteria is something which is produced um, cognitively, mentally, emotionally, 
And it's produced through a kind of emotional blockage where you have an experience which you simply cannot process, which you cannot admit to yourself, really. And so, uh, according to Freud, repression um, sets in, and so you start hiding this memory essentially within yourself. Um, now, interestingly, contemporary discourse has sort of kind of reconciled Charcot and Freud, um, in particular the work of another of Charcot's ex-students, um, Pierre Janet, who's ideas are somewhere in between those have been revived a bit because it seems that post-traumatic stress syndrome, for instance, has certain elements of both of this, um, although, you know, it's a fairly general kind of statement, I would have to say. But nevertheless, there's something kind of, you know, Freud and Charcot, they were close and I think they still remain close. It's a question of emphasis. Is it flesh or is it mind and particularly for Freud, therefore, sexuality. Yes, that's that's very interesting. Um, so you've also mentioned the theatrical, and I do want to give you an opportunity to explain that element of your argument um, in greater detail for our, our listeners. So I guess I'm asking why focus on the dramaturgical aspect or what drew you to the dramaturgical aspect of Charcot's practice as both a clinician and a cataloger of neurological diagnoses? And then I would also um, appreciate if you could spend a bit of time discussing the similarities and differences in these roles as teacher versus clinician. Yeah, well, when it comes to um, Charcot, as I said, there's a clear link between the way he presents and analyzes the illnesses and the particular topic which he is looking at. So neurology is a disease of neuromotor control. It is something which is manifest through essentially performances, through gestures, through what is ultimately choreography. And so to analyse diseases, kind of in a first step in, I mean, even today in um, neurological diagnosis is to do a kind of choreographic analysis to identify what are the principal gestures that this patient is giving out to kind of set them in order um, and see which nervous pathways they relate to and then to um, imagine what is the likely physical cause and you do that by comparing it with the dissected body of other patients, ultimately. Um, so what Charcot is doing in his public lectures is first getting the patients to essentially stage their illness. So he has first done this kind of choreographic analysis and then he basically prompts them to re-perform um, this illness. He then, as a teacher, um, performs that diagnosis um, and quite famously had two lecture streams, um, one of which was um, quite detailed and was part of um, more general teaching uh, at the um, medical faculty. But the other one would just be kind of, you know, patient of the day um, that he would present. These were the Tuesday lessons or the Lesson du Mardi, um, and they tended to be a bit more famous because here you could really see how Charcot worked it out in the moment. He would sit there and kind of interview the patient initially, um, do some initial tests. There's a number of physical tests and things like getting a patient to drink a glass of water or attempt to touch their nose with their eyes closed, things we still do, um, which you can do to start to identify some of how their neuromuscular pathways and their sensory pathways are or are not functioning. So Charcot would do this, explain this to the audience, and then produce a diagnosis of sorts. 
Um, now, quite interestingly, when I looked at the records for this, um, the, my study is not um, in and of itself a close um, archival analysis, um, but I did nevertheless, of course, look at the archives, as any good historian did, and look through a very large number of patient records and so on, and I bring them in sparingly along with the actual published material and accounts about Charcot. Um, and I discovered that, in fact, the difference between these two sets of patients was quite small. Um, it's very clear that Charcot actually prepared his Lesson du Mardi, these lessons that he supposedly just improvised, quite closely. I mean, there really was a script. Um, in fact, he even would write down very specific phrases that he was going to say when he interviewed the patients. So it's so much like theatre. You know, it's pre-planned, it's rehearsed, and then it's performed. But it's an interesting kind of performance because by pretending to be live, by pretending to be improvised, it demonstrates knowledge and it kind of manifests it in the space for the audience. So it's both um, a demonstration of how the student should then go off and be as a doctor themselves, but it's also kind of a fulfilment and demonstration of Charcot's own diagnostic power. You kind of see him actually manifest this in the moment. Um, and I guess the last thing to add about this is that um, Charcot didn't really do a lot of therapy. Um, so we had the Salpetriere Hospital and certainly he did attract a lot of patients who came in to try and have um, their really very unpleasant conditions improved. Neurological illnesses tend to be um, quite global uh, and very, very debilitating, as anyone who has something like Huntington's knows very well. Um, and treatments, I mean, they're not fantastic now and they were next to non-existent in Charcot's period. So really his concern is all, almost always first and foremost diagnosis. Um, you could move to therapy afterwards, but that was a relatively small element of his own teaching and practice. So I'm really interested to know a bit more. You've mentioned the improvisation of the Tuesday lectures, um, but what in what other ways were Charcot's lectures theatrical? Uh, maybe you could describe the amphitheater a little bit and maybe some of the kinds of technologies or stagings in greater detail. Yeah, now the amphitheatre is interesting because when you hear a word like amphitheatre, particularly we in English language world tend to think, well, it must be something like a um, Greek classical theatre. It's going to be curved. And in fact, the amphitheatre for the Paris Medical Facility itself, um, the one that still exists and you can visit, lovely venue, um, is quite literally that. It's a lovely curved space with big domed roof. Um, Charcot's amphitheatre, so-called, wasn't that at all. And what I discovered, you know, um, uh, doing the research in Paris is that actually most lectures around um, Paris are called amphitheatres. It's a fairly generic name for a lecture hall. So when you look at the um, photographs of um, the amphitheatre itself, and these aren't particularly well known, but if you check these photographs, you discover that it's not round at all. It is a um, rectangular structure. Now, Charcot used a lot of slide projection. Um, this was really commented on a lot by his um, peers and visitors. They thought this was fantastic. Most of the accounts, I drew very heavily on accounts of people who had seen Charcot's lectures. 
Um, most of these accounts mention the slides and how wonderful they were. Um, it doesn't actually seem that Charcot pioneered this per se. There were certainly other people using slide projection. Um, there's one guy in Vienna and there was another person at the Salpetria a bit before Charcot, Duchenne de Bologna, um, who Charcot worked with briefly, um, who also used slides. But in any case, Charcot, um, you know, was probably the best known person who started using slides very extensively. Um, and also what was in the slides was quite interesting. Now, Charcot drew very heavily on a number of different forms of representation. So bodies that move are just hard to fix. They're hard to nail down. So Charcot brought everything he could at it. So he would bring... Um, photographs of paintings from the past saying, look, here you can see this, pa this painter from the medieval period has identified a moment of epileptic seizure and you can tell that because of the way the back is curved in this painting. He would bring in photographic slides. He helped develop um, a photography laboratory at the Salpetria and the Salpetria really was quite cutting edge in this, particularly in its publications. They published lots and lots and lots of photographs um, and so they used photography a lot to try and fix poses which arose during seizures, tremors and other conditions. F photographs though present a little bit of a problem at this point because they're typically quite long exposures um, and also, frankly, they just weren't that good. Um, they did change photographic technologies at um, the Salpetria during Charcot's um, uh, stay there, but um, initially they were quite poor and they really had to be touched up first. So what you're also getting are sketches, um, and Paul Richer as well as Charcot would often get photographs and from the photographs produce sketches, or sometimes they would sketch directly from the patient, and this is particularly important where a patient is moving quite fast. Richer was really good at this. He did these quite quick sketches. So he had this wonderful collection of different images. Plus, as I've said, what um, he does, he's trying to do is to link these poses to the dissected body. So we also have photographs of slide um, material and um, prepared tissue, which shows where lesions or other things may be. Um, and in some cases, we have actual um, preserved patient material, casts, waxworks, so, again, why is this theatre? Well, there's a, it's a multimedia theatre. There's a very large number of props and materials that are brought in. The slide projectors were also quite notable um, because they used, um, well, it's a little unclear exactly what they were, but it seems pretty clear that um, they used electric light in them. Um, now, this is quite unusual for the period. Electricity was being used in lighting a bit, but not much. Um, principally, you'd be using something like gaslight or even just kind of normal lamp burners. So the fact that he had electricity in here was, again, kind of a sign of how modern and new he was. Um, and to get all of this to work properly, what he also had was a dimmable system. That is to say that when um, the, everybody had come into the lecture theatre, the windows could be closed off by these quite large, heavy shutters um, and the whole space dimmed. And so what you look at is quite precisely controlled by where the light is striking. And we know he did this. Um, there were footlights used at various points as well as the slide projectors. In fact, somewhat interestingly, we know from one um, reproduction uh, in um, the journal Nature that he even sometimes used the slide projector as a light source itself. 
so to direct a very intense beam. So it was kind of like, you know, you sort of split the um, patient's body apart and you show what's inside it and its past history and previous representations as well as the, f- the future um, and the past, all in this amazing display. And that was really what was so striking about it. Um, that said, it was also deeply paradoxical because Charcot was not really a particularly good speaker. Now, there's a bit of difference of opinion about this um, in the writing. After Charcot died, there's, as I said, there's a very large number of these accounts of what his lectures were like. Um, a lot of these are frankly hagiographic. They're by people who are his ex-students and so on. So they're kind of reliable, but you have to take them with a grain of salt, obviously. Um, some of them just said, look, you know, he was amazing. Everything he said sounded wonderful. But once you start unpicking it and you find people who are a bit more critical, you notice some of them say that actually he had quite a kind of low voice. It wasn't really, He didn't project very well. If you weren't lucky enough to get in early and you didn't sit close to the front, you couldn't um, hear him properly, which, you know, is very, very annoying. Um, and one guy even went so far as to say that um, he speaks slowly and dully as though hammering nails into a block of wood. And I can just sort of imagine those sort of boring lectures like I used to go to in first-year university, sort of sitting there being pummeled by Charcot's voice. Um, so it was both a very, very successful um Uh, kind of almost supernatural theatre, really, but also banal. And the contention I'm making is that's very important because being like theatre is powerful. It enables you to dissect the body virtually, to show these behaviours, to record them, teach um, how to deal with them and so on. But it also makes theatre and science come together quite closely in a way that might make people suggest that science is a kind of art or, worse yet, science is a kind of fiction and that Chaco might be just making it up. And people did actually accuse him of quite precisely that. Yes, I definitely want to get to those uh, critiques uh, eventually, but I have so many actually questions for you. Um, This is so interesting. So let me... I guess, just begin by asking, do we know who the audience was? I I think you mentioned um, that the lectures were open to the public and that they were quite popular, but do we have a sense of actually who was attending? Um, Yeah, so again, there's a little bit of um, lack of detail. Essentially, what what, what I'm trying to present in the book is to return quite a bit of the detail to um, scholarship around Charcot. Charcot is a figure who pops up in studies all over the place. Um, Just about any good book on the history of gender that covers the 19th century will mention Charcot's famous lectures on hysteria and so on. But they don't go into much detail. And when you go into detail, you discover as is always the case, it's more complicated, but it's also more ambiguous. So technically speaking, the lectures that he presented were not open to the public, in fact. They were um, supposed to only be attended by medical students or, um, in fact, students from the School of Fine Arts could attend. Um, They were generally encouraged to attend medical lectures because that would help them in life drawing, drawing nudes and so on. And that's quite a significant link because it turns out that Um, two of Charcot's former students ended up teaching at the School of Fine Arts, but I won't discuss that right now, although that's discussed in the book. Um, So basically you had to be a student to go there. But, of course, famous people or important politicians and so on tended to be able to get invitations and came along anyway. Um, 
What we also have, though, is at least one account of this um, uh, fabulous American um, visiting uh, physician, Jane Henderson, um, and she just wandered up to the Salpetriere and pretty much said to the person at the gate, hey, where is Charcot's lecture theatre? And they said, over there. And she walked over there and sat in the lecture theatre. So as you can see, while these aren't public lectures in the sense that they're not advertised to the public, he doesn't actively solicit the general public, the general public was definitely there to some degree. How general were they? Well, it's hard to be sure, but basically it seems that a sort of erudite middle-class audience was what you would expect. Certainly Charcot's peers, which included a lot of scientists and um, but also writers, authors, politicians, Hippolyte Tain attended, um, the Goncourt brothers, famous diarists, um, attended the Dordays. Um, Charcot lived next door to the Dordays, so the Dordays attended. In fact, one of the Dordays, Leon Dorday, became a student of Charcot. Um, so you had quite a diverse audience there um, of people who um, included artists, philosophers, thinkers, and lots of newspaper people. That was for sure. There were a lot of newspaper people. That's really fascinating. Um, so I want to ask you some questions about photography and drawing, but, but before I do that, I want to sort of circle back and ask you about the ways in which Charcot drew on neoclassical aesthetics and also Plato and Aristotle. You do spend some time talking about that in the book, and I thought that was one of the most original uh, aspects of your argument. So maybe you can talk a bit about that since we've discussed also the amphitheater and the rhetoric and those dimensions of Charcot's practice as a as a pedagogue. Sure. Yeah. Well, I guess so to set the you know to set the book to kind of re-go back to kind of the overall thesis of the book, um, what I'm trying to tease out are the implications which come which arise from drawing medicine and art, or particularly medicine and theatre together. Now one of the main implications is that um, medical presentation becomes a kind of theatre which is both powerful but also can undermine medical authority. So that's the first one, which I've already mentioned. The other one, though, which is perhaps a little more unexpected, is that diagnosis becomes aesthetic. So if what you're doing is essentially a choreographic or, um, to use a more technical term for other forms of um, performance, including theatre, a dramaturgical um, analysis, which includes analysis of, say, narrative and character and things like this, if you're doing a dramaturgical analysis, it becomes clear that, you know, kind of various aesthetic questions come into it. Um, and so what are we looking at here with um, neuropathology? Well, we're looking at alaterally symmetrical um, asymmetrical um, material. So the body is not doing the same thing on either side of the body. Um, the material tends to be stochastic, so it tends to move in leaps or jumps. It's not smooth. Um, tends to be quite chaotic. It's very difficult to describe. In fact, that's almost kind of the, the defining feature. The harder it is to actually nail down and isolate and tell somebody what you're looking at and to describe it afterwards, the more likely it is to be pathological. So what therefore arises is that the inverse of that turns out to be neoclassical aesthetics. The body is bilaterally symmetrical. Um, instead of diseased, collapsing, deformed bodies, you rather have kind of idealised, near-perfect bodies. And the movements that they are able to do and that they are routinely recorded in art as doing are these quite spectacular and very rhythmically harmonious movements. 
Now, this is something that was always implicit in Charcot's own commentary, and he did write about art. He collaborated with Paul Richer, who I mentioned earlier, who ended up teaching at the School of Fine Arts, on a whole series of books, starting with um, The Deformed and the Diseased in Art, um, and then later um, Demonics, or Those Who Are Demonically Possessed in Art. Um, but Richer and then later Henry Mage, who was both a student of Charcot's and a student of Richer's, later kind of formalised this in their own writings, which appear a little bit after Charcot's death. Richer starts publishing this stuff about the 1892, as I recall, and keeps publishing it through to 1901. Some of Mage's material is published as late as 1930. I don't draw on that kind of material so much. I tend to stop somewhere around 1910 or so. Um, but both of them are arguing that um, the ideal body that you should be teaching to fine arts is one that you see in classical art, and it's typically um, athletes. So if you look at the Parthenon, you know, they're running, they're jumping, they're doing this kind of very impressive sort of movements. And, of course, what are the, one of the things that defines ancient Greek civilization? It's the Olympics. Um, and, in fact, Paul Richer was quite closely associated with Pierre de Coubertin and some of these others who helped generate the um, Olympics movement as we know it and develop um, what's more broadly kind of known as the sports and physical hygiene mo movement, the very idea that we should be doing sport in order to make us healthy. So Richer and Mage were drawing on this kind of material and saying, what made the, um, the classical artists so brilliant was the fact that they watched sport. They watched naked people performing in these athletic acts and they watched these, you know, um, kind of heroic figures uh, of very good um, physical health doing these kind of acts. And their movement was rhythmic and harmonious. So, again, one of the kind of really interesting things about this is that um, when you're talking movement, the key thing is it's transition in space, sure, but it's also transition in time so that um, the aesthetics you're describing are kind of, well, they are rhythmic and so they're kind of musical. So it, it, one of the things I found, which was a lovely found, find and I put in the book, is um, Paul Richer later says, if you're going to look at the arts that arise from different periods and epitomise that era, you would say with the ancient Egyptians that this must have been architecture and that with the Renaissance, this was painting. But for the modern age, that is to say his age, the age of photography, the age in which you're able to do what's known as stop-motion photography, so do quite um, short uh, bursts of photographic stills and see the stepped motion in the um, performance of the athlete. In this era, what is the art that we supposedly excel in? It is music, in fact. And in saying that, what he's essentially saying is that he's a kind of music critic. Um, so, yeah, so Charcot's work has an implicit aesthetic to it and that becomes more explicit actually a little bit after Charcot's death. And so my argument is that um, where his work uh, really kind of moves, because um, there's an interesting thing after his death, partly because he was so powerful, a lot of his work gets discounted, particularly the work in Hysteria, but his influence continues kind of leapfrogs into art and especially into the School of Fine Arts. So now we've sort of circled around the topic of photography. So let's let's address it sort of head on. Um, you know, when you're discussing movement, uh, you've uh, 
also indicated that stop motion photography was something that was pioneered at the Salpetriere. But maybe you can talk about sort of the epistemic and artistic tensions of photography um, in the context of Charcot's practice at the Salpetriere, and then um, also address your analysis of of Bourneville's uh, work, um, which you've also mentioned in passing, the, the iconography. Yeah. Um, so, you know, photography is still a fairly new technology at this point. Um, now, we're very used to thinking of photography as inherently scientific, and that's an opinion that is promoted at that time. So it's very central to the sort of discussions um, that uh, Charcot and his colleagues are having, and it's central to the reason they use it. In fact, any kind of new modern technology when they use it, they're partly using it to kind of claim that that is modernity and that modernity is truth and knowledge and moving forward in this way. As I said, the slide projector and the fact that it's electric actually functions in a relatively similar way. That said, the idea that photography, in fact, is somehow scientific and therefore um, essentially unmediated, that it just gives you a very direct access to truth, was not um, uncontentious at that period, um, and certainly a number of people didn't agree. Um, and the way in which the, um, the Charcot Circle argued this is a little bit surprising because they tend to argue it by comparing photography to painting. So they find these instances of earlier paintings, which they claim have this kind of photographic level of realism, and so the two kind of bleed together. Photography becomes a kind of perfected form of painting and the best of painting becomes photography before photography even existed. Um, so the, the aesthetics of photography and, and its kind of um, claims to knowledge is, is actually, you know, quite muddled at that period. Um, now, once they're kind of moving in this direction and developing the photographic practice, um, Bourneville comes on the scene. Um, now, Bourneville's an interesting figure in a lot of ways um, because he's actually an alienist. He's a psychiatrist. He's not a neurologist, although um, he ends up working with Charcot and kind of becomes, I suppose, by default a neurologist because he works under Charcot for so long. Um, and Charcot basically gets him in his service because, as I said, Charcot is looking at hysteroepilepsy. And, um, again, this stuff comes out of the Salpetria itself and its particular spatial makeup. The theatre within which Charcot operates sets up a lot of the sort of tensions which he has to deal with. That is to say, in the case of hysteria, there's a very large number of patients and Charcot is asked to separate which ones are truly hysterical and therefore will go off with the psychiatric wards and which ones are in fact epileptic or have something similar to epilepsy and therefore will be looked after by neurologists. Charcot quite brilliantly says, well, neither. They all have hysteroepilepsy, which is, in fact, neurological. So he gets the whole lot. Um, so it's quite a power grab, really, that Charcot pulls off there. Um, and so what he also gets is the person who is in charge of those wards, who is Bourneville. Now, Bourneville had initially been on the board of um, another uh, photographic publication, the first one in Paris, the uh, archives of photographic medicine, um, and he starts to kind of do some um, photographic studies in the wards, um, principally of the hysterical patients. Um, they initially get published as separate papers, but gradually they get accumulated and they get 
um, put into um, a collected volume. And this becomes very, very popular and is really the best thing known uh, about Charcot's practice for most people, um, both in Charcot's own day and uh, subsequently. So there's a three-volume set, the Iconographie Photographique de la Salpetria. Now, the title um, is not in, a, in and of itself that unusual to describe this as an iconography, as a collection of icons or images which you analyse, um, is something that you'd already seen in um, anatomical texts. Um, that said, it implies exactly what it is. It's a kind of aesthetic analysis of images. So what you get in the iconography are these um, quite detailed case histories um, and then a photograph of um, each patient and in some cases multiple photographs. This is where the famous Augustine appears um, and she's really known through her photographs in um, the iconography photographique. Um, and because what we have here is so many photographs, the iconography is an amazingly rich document that it sort of acts like a flip book. So even though the exposure times are quite long, the attempt and what they try and do, and they supplement it with sketches and other things, um, including recordings of tracings where they put um, monitors onto the body and record the vibrations and the speed of those vibrations and the amplitude of those vibrations. They put a whole series of these documents together in this book. So it becomes a document of the movement. It becomes like a flip book. It's basically the closest you can get to cinema before cinema exists. Now, the first volume um, is quite interesting in a number of ways because, again, we're quite used to thinking of it as being about hysteria. Um, but that's not quite the case. In fact, what it starts with is a study of um, what's known as partial epilepsy, um, which is basically a paralysis um, usually of the arm, although not necessarily, it can be another spot, um, in what's known as a contracture. So the paralysis has isolated um, the muscles in such a way that they're all contracted and they're permanently contracted. This is why you can't move it. Now, what also occurs, though, in a great many partial epileptics is this contracture later reverses and becomes an expansion, um, and this then kind of flows from the limb um, into the rest of the body. It's sort of a contagion through the body. Um, so partial epilepsy can lead to a full-blown epileptic attack. So really what you have is a shading from these various patients described as partial epilepsy, or some of them are also known as athetosis, where they have instead of a permanent contracture, which therefore is very easy to photograph, I might add. This is one of the reasons photography is so connected with this. A paralysis is a good thing to photograph. It's stick, it's stable. But once you're moving to the way it moves from partial epilepsy, the contracture into the body and exploding outwards, it gets a bit trickier. But nevertheless, they attempt that, and they do this rather well, to capture the different movements. So we move from partial epilepsy properly understood into hysteria and hysteroepilepsy, and that's when the patient material becomes more and more complicated. So, again, there's a kind of push and pull here. This is what's always present in Charcot's work. And this is what the moving or theatrical body presents. We have a static recording of a moving body and an attempt to replicate the moving body kind of by piling on lots and lots of images to the point where they almost blur and turn into a moving body. But they're always somehow inadequate. Um, the very structure of the iconography photographique de la Salpetria as a text um, itself 
uh, echoes this kind of spatial or theatrical logic because each of the um, volumes starts with a photograph of the Salpetria itself um, initially from the outside and then there's another one which shows the inner gate and then you move to the chapel. So in the book, it's almost like you move into the Salpetriere virtually. You join the doctors and you actually look at the patient material themselves, these actual patients. So you, you do like a theatre audience does. You come into physical contact with these patients. Now, obviously, photography can't really do that and this is the problem in it, but it's also why this is such a wonderful and rich text because it nearly does and it tries to and so those are the kind of tensions that Chaco is always trying to overcome. I really do find your flipbook argument very compelling actually so um, I, I, I definitely agree. Uh, one thing I want to ask you about is that at one point you compare Charcot's lectures to the dramaturgy of Bertolt Brecht um, and that sort of linking actually of Charcot with the German playwright really intrigued me. So maybe you can expand on this connection for our listeners. Sure. So, I mean, Brecht, you know, said a great many things about theatre, but what he's best known for is his so-called alienation effect or V effect. What Brecht argued is that by reminding someone that you are an actor, by kind of sort of taking off the mask while you're performing and going, P.S., this is me here, you defamiliarise that act and therefore you activate critical judgement. So in other words, by reminding the audience that you are a performer, it ceases to be fiction. It in fact becomes critical commentary. It becomes, if all Brecht wanted it to be political commentary, but in Charcot's case, he wants it to be clinical commentary. So that act of defamiliarising, of reminding the audience at strategic points that it is actually a performance, it is not simply something which kind of sucks you in emotionally, um, psychologically and so on, um, is a key way to ensure it remains science. Science has to be essentially Brechtian because if science isn't Brechtian and if it sucks you in and takes you on this journey to the point where you forget you're even in the lecture theatre and you're kind of almost imagining yourself just with the patient or maybe even being like the patient, that becomes something very different. In fact, what Charcot was accused of becoming like was being like um, uh, Wagner, who was very, very popular um, in Paris at this point. And they said that, you know, Charcot isn't actually acting as a, um, a lecturer anymore, which Brechtian um, alienation or the V effect would enable, but is in fact acting as someone who entrances and hypnotises in the way that Wagner does through his completely totalizing and overwhelming use of music, sound, and so on. Yeah, this is a great juncture actually to turn to the sort of critiques that you discuss at the end section of, of the book. So do you want to go into a little bit more about the anti-theatrical uh, critique of, of Charcot? Yeah, so that material is very important because, you know, it's very easy to sort of theorise about these things afterwards. And I should point out in saying all these things, um, as I, it's probably clear in what I've already said, you know, I do actually admire Charcot a lot. I mean, certainly there are big problems with the guy um, ethically as well as <laughs> um, cognitively, but, um, you know, he did some amazing stuff and he still deserves to be remembered for it. But um, it's not just me who's projecting this idea of theatricality and theatricality as both a boon but also a flaw in Charcot's work. We have clear evidence that people at the time did precisely that. 
Um, so the fact that Charcot was compared to Wagner means that this, you know, really is what was going on, that other people thought, you are being too much like theatre. Um, now, that's, that particular critique comes from a rather short essay by Platel, um, uh, who wrote um, in the newspapers at the time. Charcot, by the way, is absolutely furious about that one um, and went around trying to work out who he was because it was originally published anonymously. Um, but, yeah, so that's a fairly short essay. So I turn my attention to two rather um, longer uh, critiques offered by Axel Munth and Leon Dorday. Now, I've mentioned Dorday already. Dorday was um, a rather successful, or was to become a rather successful um, literary author. And, in fact, he was also to become a rather successful French fascist. Um, and you can clearly see that in the things that he says about Charcot. I probably haven't really got time to go into the racial implications of this, and I only deal with them fairly briefly in the book, but they certainly exist. In either case, um, Dorday studied with Charcot um, and was quite close to the family in numerous ways, but broke with them under really quite extraordinary and melodramatic contexts, namely um, that uh, he divorced his wife, um, who then later married Charcot's son, um, and also Dorday himself um, enrolled in medicine and studied with Charcot but then failed medicine and was unable to progress. Um, so Dorday was pretty angry with Charcot. Axel Munth, by contrast, um, was also a kind of medical literary author, crossover author. Um, he's best known for the text which I draw on, which is the story of Saint-Michel, which is a kind of medical biography. Um, and again, quite interestingly, um, in the case of Munth, he fictionalises. The account that he gives us of um, Charcot, he actually tells us in the book that it didn't happen exactly like this, but that he sort of embellished it because that is more true in some way. So there's a kind of interesting thing going on here that these critics who are saying, Charcot, you are too theatrical, they are themselves caught up in theatricality in various ways. Munth, by quasi-fictionalising his own work and describing a similarly kind of melodramatic encounter between himself and Charcot, um, and Dorday, who writes this astonishing, really kind of horrible account of Charcot in um, his novel, um, uh, Le Morticol, or The Deathly, where he calls Charcot footage, which more or less translates as fucked. Um, so that was a pretty mean one, although he's a bit kinder to him in his um, medical biography, Devant la Douleur. Um, in either case, both of them see um, theatricality as the problem with Charcot, probably the main problem. For Munth, it's to rely too much on the eye. You shouldn't rely on the eye because it's superficial. You don't get to see depth. You don't get to see what's really behind there. And so Charcot becomes deceived by appearances, according to Munth. Dorday's critique is a bit more complicated because he sees theatre as all about outward show but no inner heart, and in particular a kind of, um, well, not kind of, a Catholic and uh, religious heart. So Charcot becomes a um, figure who represents everything that's rotten about modern France and particularly its secular medical traditions and despite the fact that they're all proposing that we should be rational and so on, they actually lead us into this kind of hysterical excess. Um, and, and for Dorday, in fact, a quite revolting hysterical excess in which we almost become kind of contaminated by the bodies we see. So by being close to these figures in the lecture theatres, it's almost like we kind of 
feel the miasma that comes at from their bodies. So, um, as I said, the kind of the racial implications here, the way that that also feeds into anti-Semitism is pretty clear in Dorday. Wow, that's really um, fascinating. Yeah. Sorry, go ahead. Uh, the other, I suppose, critique in a, in a very different sense um, although to some degree this is the legacy of Charcot, is in the Théâtre de Grand Guignol. Um, now, this is really the the quite, it, for me, this astonished me when I first found found out about this. So um, Charcot's students, after his death, became involved with France's um, most popular and first and premier horror theatre, the Théâtre de Grand Guignol, which basically means theatre of the big puppet. Um, the Grand Guignol used to have rapes, violence, people being dismembered, and a lot of stuff about medical catastrophes, about doctors going crazy and doing the wrong experiments or doing horrible mad scientist experiments or so on. So the principal person here is um, Alfred Binet. Um, Binet is a slightly complicated figure because he was independently wealthy. He did study with Charcot, but he didn't actually really need to, frankly. Nevertheless, he did become quite influential in medicine, and um, he's best known today for developing the IQ test. So he studied with Charcot for some time, and he ends up collaborating with the main author for the Théâtre de Grand Guignol, André Delord. And he's not the only one. Um, Gilles de la Tourette gives a public lecture at one of the um, presentations of Delord's uh, plays, which also, as is so often the case, goes horribly wrong because it turns out that Gilles de la Tourette was by then suffering from um, syphilitic dementia, so he kind of completely loses the plot on stage and has to be taken off stage, poor man. Um, so melodrama follows all around them. And several of the others were supporters of the Teatro de Grand Guignol in one way or the other. And the Grand Guignol includes a number of plays which deal with essentially hysterics or other neurological kind of conditions, which um, uh, Binet collaborated in the writing. And most importantly, there's a play about Charcot. Now, the character isn't called Charcot, he's called Mabois, um, but it's so clear that he is Charcot. He even wears a top hat. Um, Charcot famously would wear his top hat even when dissecting things. Um, so it's very clear that this is meant to be a Charcot-like figure. And Mabois himself gives a lecture and becomes kind of slightly crazy um, and uh, loses the plot and becomes sort of hypnotised or enters a fugue state, much as um, the patients were renowned to have done at the Salpetriere. That's very, very fascinating. Unfortunately, however, we're, we're running out of time. So let me ask you one last question. Um, what was the most surprising or unusual thing that you learned about Charcot when researching and writing this book? As I said, I think the Grand Guignol connection is still the most surprising because even though I now know why it existed, so basically the the, pace, the um, figures close to Charcot supported the Grand Guignol because they thought that by having medically accurate representations um, that this was doing essentially a public service and informing the public about how things how things work. Nevertheless, these plays are so over the top. Some of them are so horrible. Um, they were so disreputable. And given that this group of people, Charcot especially, were so prim and proper and were the pride of the Republic, they were the absolute guardians of all kind of goodness, really, um, that that connection existed and, you know, that they didn't see a contradiction there. It's just, it's just hard to fathom, frankly. <laughs> Yes, yes, absolutely. Well, I have to say thank you so much for your time, Professor Marshall. It was a real pleasure to speak with you today. 
You're most welcome. Thank you. Thank you, everyone, for listening. This is New Books in Science. Until next time.